Welcome. You are listening to Copland. Copland is about the life and times of our protectors and defenders, police, fire, EMS, medical trauma units, and the military. The underappreciated doing the unthinkable for the often ungrateful. I am Jay Dobbins, and I'll be your host. In each season, we will hear three episodes featuring extraordinary heroes, amazing personal experiences that will inspire and uplift you. Sometimes they might shock you. The highs and lows, the successes and the failures, told in their own words and all experienced during their personal journey of sacrifice to make the world a safer place. This is Copland. been shot off at this point so I tried to turn around and get back to that tire when I caught around from behind that hit me in the face and uh, <clears throat> hit me right in front of the ear traveled through my face exited the right side of my nose blew out my right cheekbone what was left of my right cheekbone broke and kicked out to the right it blew out my orbital floor uh, my eye fell into this uh, newfound hole in my face it broke all the bones above my eye it shattered it broke the head of my jaw and it shattered my jaw to my chin and knocked me out our pilot episode is titled get off the x and we are going to meet retired navy seal jason redmond when i was 17 um, my dad signed for me to join the Navy. I joined the Navy on September 11th, 1992. Uh, there was no direct pipeline to SEAL training back then. Uh, basically, they said, hey, if you sign up when you're in boot camp, you'll have an opportunity that at some point, some SEAL will come around to the boot camp companies and say, who's interested in trying out for SEAL training? And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was a little bit of a a crapshoot almost, you know, it was like, okay, so I'm placing my future and this is all I want to do in the Navy. I had no desire to join the Navy, um, to be perfectly honest, if it wasn't for being a SEAL. I, I took this shot and sure enough, about third week of boot camp, you know, some big burly guy came around and said, who wants to be a SEAL? And I raised my hand and there was about, I don't know, 15 of us that tried out and uh, by the end of the test, which I had trained for, for probably a year and a half, uh, I think only three of us made it, uh, made qualified for the physical test and, uh, and earned a slot uh, to go to SEAL training. As a young SEAL, Jason's leadership skills were extraordinary and his career skyrocketed. I had made myself physically strong for my body weight and that's something that so many people need to understand that, you know, there are certain sports that you absolutely have to have size and strength. Obviously, football is one of those sports. In the SEAL teams, you don't have to have size. As a matter of fact, size sometimes can be a, a detriment. We have a ton of guys that go through training that, that are really big guys that don't make it because the amount of pounding on your body and your body weight over seven months or a year, however long it takes you to get through training, just breaks guys. And if you're carrying over 200 pounds and you start throwing body armor and everything else on it and weapons, you know, 50 to 80 pounds of gear, your joints and bones start to just take a pounding. So I was fortunate enough that I was light, but I was incredibly strong for my body weight. I mean, I could, uh, in boot camp, I set the record for uh, a push-up competition. I did over 400 push-ups straight. Um, so stepped into the SEAL teams, I was strong. I, I was able to pick up on tactical lessons quickly, although I often got myself in trouble because 
as you get good at something, often we start to get a little arrogant. And I've always been incredibly stubborn and bullheaded and not as tactful and diplomatic when I was young and often found myself uh, <laughs> getting myself in trouble. Never bad enough to disrupt, though, a forward path upward. And uh, so continue to excel, continue to do very well, was ranked, you know, number one multiple times in the specific areas where I worked and as an instructor, so much so that it, it earned me uh, a opportunity to become an officer. So was recommended uh, for a commissioning program, didn't make it the first year, uh, but reapplied in the second year I picked it up. This is all prior to 9-11. So uh, at the time, I kind of thought this was a good opportunity. And I'll be honest, my dad was an officer. My sister was an officer. My grandfathers were officers. I was the only enlisted guy in our family uh, at that point. And I was like, you know, maybe I need to go down this road. And, and I was doing well. I was like, I, you know, I think I could do a good job as a leader. Um, <clears throat> although, interestingly enough, I think I was more enamored with the leadership position itself than the impact of making a difference with the guys. And that's an important point for people to understand. So uh, went forward, got commissioned, went to my ROTC or went forward, went to my ROTC unit, Old Dominion University. Um, and for three years, I had three years to get my degree. And this ROTC unit was one of, at the time, one of the largest on the East Coast. There were over 300 officer candidates and midshipmen. And I worked my way up to become the student. You had to have a leadership position. Uh, and uh, I worked my way up to the student battalion commander. So I was in charge of the entire unit and was ranked number one when I left that unit. Jason had built himself a career path to greatness when it crashed. He is open and honest, speaking on how ego and arrogance interfered with his decision-making, but much more importantly, how humility helped him restore lost respect. My ego had started to get pretty big, um, and I came back commissioned, went back to the SEAL teams thinking I was going to be God's gift to leadership. Um, you know, I thought, man, I've done multiple deployments. I had touched upon a little bit of combat in Colombia. Um, our base, we thought it was getting overrun and it, 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 a very small firefight was shot into the base, which turned into a, a gigantic firefight by the Colombian army and our guys. Um, but it, it gave me a taste of that. So here I was, I'm thinking, Hey man, I've, I've seen combat and I've done all these things, you know, I'm going to come back and just light the world on fire. And, you know, I'm going to have the best platoon in the world as a young officer. Um, but certain thing, there were some monumental things that had happened on that path. Uh, one, while I was at school, I started school in the summer of 2001. Obviously, September 11, 2001 was a pivotal day. And over the next three years I was at school, uh, there was a fundamental change in all the tactics within the SEAL teams, and I'm sure across the military, because at least for the SEAL team specifically, the last time we had seen sustained combat, and sustained combat, you know, you can train all you want. Until you get into the actual crucible of real-world stuff, uh, you, you find out then if everything's you've been training for works in the, in the chaotic situations that happens, you know, both in police work, firework, anything where lives are on the line, you quickly learn what works and doesn't. And we quickly learn 
learned when we stepped into both Iraq and Afghanistan that the tactics we were relying on that worked in the Vietnam War back then did not work in very hard urban uh, uh, close quarters combat and in the mountainous regions of Afghanistan. So there was a total rewrite of tactics over the three years that I was gone. So here I was, I stepped back, I think I'm God's gift to leadership based off all my experience, which was nothing when I stepped in. I might as well have been a brand new guy. I mean, there were certain things I knew, but uh, what happened is I was failing. I was, I was, I had to relearn everything and step up as a leader. And, uh, and the reality was I wasn't doing either very well um, because my ego was too big to say, hey man, I'm not getting this. Can you show this to me again? And I would mess something up. And instead of humbling myself and being like, hey, man, I could use some help here. I just charged blindly forward and, you know, held my head higher. And, you know, you know, people would try and talk to me and hey, screw off, man. So um, it was starting to create this perfect storm against me, which was eroding my credibility to add further damage to my credibility. The SEAL teams are a very hard partying unit and uh and i had grown up in that lifestyle and probably embraced it way too much so i'm having problems i carry that over into the side of the house as a young leader and the other side i had some friends in my platoon that we had hung out with when we were enlisted and i started drowning my sorrows and you know the pain of making mistakes and knowing I was not performing at the level I should be. Instead of focused on fixing it, I focused on ignoring it by drinking. And so many people do this in, uh, <laughs> in their own lives. I mean, it's just a common human mistake and I was doing it also, which was further eroding my credibility. So uh, several people tried to talk to me about it. Uh, my ego and arrogance was too big though and I just brushed them off. Uh, and all of that culminated with a bad call on a mission in Afghanistan. We got into a uh, into a big firefight. Uh, I was not directly involved in the firefight. The firefight was occurring down in a valley below, and I was leading a team in an Overwatch position uh, on the unit that was on our you know SEAL units that were moving through the valley below, and. Uh, because of the terrain and everything, I was the only individual that had radio communications with the headquarters element and the unit in the valley below. So we stayed all the way forward. At one point towards the end of the day of this very long day, uh, the guys in the valley got into another big firefight. One of the Afghani troops they were with got injured, uh, wounded, and uh, my boss, who my boss who was leading the unit down in the valley floor, radioed out they needed reinforcements. And I made the decision in that moment that I was going to take myself and my machine gunner down into the valley to try and reinforce them. And a lot of people hear this story, they don't understand it, and they say, well, you know, that's so brave, it's so this of you. Um, you know, yeah, maybe you can think that, because um, the reality is it was a bad decision. I mean, I literally was taking myself off a tactically superior position, providing a very necessary overwatch position, and moving myself down 2,000 feet of uh, very unfamiliar terrain, not knowing if there were potential enemy fighting positions or caves somewhere along the way, uh, really putting both myself and this young machine gunner in jeopardy. Not only that, I didn't know that we had, they had scrambled air assets to try and come in and drop bombs to push the enemy back. Well, in order for us to drop bombs, we have to know where everybody is at all times. And when I dropped off that 
clifftop, uh, we lost communications with the headquarters element. So they didn't know where we were uh, or what we were doing. Well, uh, they knew what we were doing because I had radioed my chief and he and I hated each other. We did not get along. And he told me absolutely not, which was the right call. And I told him, screw off. And I went anyways. Um, so uh, long story short, we make it to the bottom of the valley. Thank God we didn't encounter any enemy. Uh, I pick up radio comms again. The ground force commander, who's the overall guy in charge of all operations on the ground, is screaming fire into the radio and basically says, get your ass out of the valley. We're trying to clear a air support, drop bombs on the enemy. We can't do it because we don't know where you are. Scramble back out, got to the top and basically uh, realized the impact of my decision, but once again, ego and arrogance were too big. Uh, you know, the ground force commander came up to me and just ripped me to shreds. And I was like, you know what, man, I did what was right. The guys were in trouble. I ran to them. You know, I didn't know their air assets. I didn't know this. But the reality is, I knew well enough that when I was getting ready to step off that valley, the implications of what I was doing. And the reality is, it was driven by me and my, I wanted to get into the fight. I wanted to look like the hero. I wanted to be, you know, hey, look at me. I'm this leader willing to rush into battle. I'm so great. Uh, without thinking through the implications of that, the long-term impacts of that decision. Um, so I found myself uh, really ostracized from my teammates. They were like, I heard, I started to hear rumors. They were calling me Rambo Red. And that is not a compliment in a very team-based community where you rely on guys around you to keep you alive and specifically your leaders not to make erratic and irrational decisions that could jeopardize their lives. Um, so uh, I think if I had owned it in the moment, it probably wouldn't have been that big a deal. I mean, it, it, it would have been a big deal, but if I had owned it, it would have definitely lessened the blow of what had happened and probably the story would have just continued forward. But instead, because I fought back against it, uh, my ground force commander was also my executive officer said, we're sending you back to headquarters in Bagram to meet with the commanding officer. So I had to fly back. And at this point, I was starting to realize this is a big deal uh, and starting to question myself. But I was still too arrogant at that point to really own it. You know, probably next two days, I met with the commanding officer and everybody else in what's called a performance review board. And very succinctly, they basically said, we question your abilities. And uh, and uh, they pretty much told me they were going to decide if they were going to kick me out or keep me. They kept me, uh, but I was faced with a series of uh, rehabilitative <laughs> uh, things. One... They had me, they wrote out a, um, they wrote out a uh, uh, unofficial letter of reprimand that basically said your tactical leadership, operational abilities have been called into question. Uh, this letter will unofficially stay with the commanding officer for the next two years. Uh, you will go on and do another leadership role as an assistant platoon commander if you are not flawless this letter will go into your permanent officer record which would end your career i mean it would they would just process me out of the navy after that um so that occurred they rescinded any awards i was supposed to receive and then they said you're going to go u.s army ranger school so 
it was a journey and this is you know we can get really deep into the introspection and the journey it took me to finally humble myself because the whole time I'm, I'm painting myself as the victim i'm the victim it's their fault it's his fault i'm thrown under the bus i did the right thing you know i was the hero willing to go down into the valley and you guys just don't like it because you don't like me um and it took me about five months uh really that period of time i got home in october and it really wasn't until February of being in the beginning of Ranger School and something significant happened in Ranger School also uh, that I won't get into here just because we have limited time. But uh, basically, I finally, for the first time in my life, started to come to grips with the fact, hey, bro, you're not as great as you think you are and you want to be this great leader, but you're anything but. You know, you are not living the life of a leader. Uh, you are not following what makes good leaders. And uh, I kind of came up as I started to evolve and figure that out. I started to come up with, well, okay, well, what is that? And started to follow what I call the three rules of leadership, how you lead yourself, how you lead others, and how you lead always. And that really was the turning point of my career to finally humble myself and go, yeah, dude, you were anything but a good leader. And, you know, everything that has gone wrong in your career up to this point that you feel like you're being thrown under the bus, it's your fault, bro. So um, started this new journey. And it was a very hard journey because the guys in a special operations community, I would imagine the same in law enforcement and in the fire service, when people's lives are on the line, they, they, uh, they don't tolerate individuals who could potentially kill them very well. Uh, they want to do everything in their power to push them away because your lives are on the line. And my teammates had done the same. They wanted nothing to do with me. And I think they were very unhappy that the leadership had decided to keep me. Uh, I think they would have been much more happy if the leadership had just gotten rid of me. So I knew that coming back in, I knew that it was going to be this massive uphill climb and I knew that it was going to take a long time to build back the trust and credibility and respect with my teammates. And I just focused on that one step at a time. But what it did is it built tremendous appreciation for that process and it built tremendous something I talk about called mental leadership, your ability to humble yourself, your ability to educate yourself, your ability to get outside your comfort zone, your ability to build this overcome mindset despite adversity pushing down on you. And uh, that journey from massive failure to coming all the way back over the next two years, earning back the respect of my teammates, um, truly, truly, truly forged this overcome mindset that I talk about. In 2007, Jason's SEAL unit was tasked to go after a high-value al-Qaeda target in the Al-Anbar province of Iraq. During that operation, he was ambushed, receiving injuries so catastrophic, very few could ever imagine, and even fewer could have survived to talk about. So fast forward to find myself in Iraq in the spring of 2007, and probably the, one of the more volatile points of the war at this point, 2000. Six into 2007, the vast majority of wounded warriors you will meet got wounded and, and individuals killed got wounded and injured in those two years because it occurred during the surge and it occurred during something called the Ambar Awakening. So probably, I, 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 I don't know this for a fact, but if I was to um, wager the majority of missions in Iraq, the heaviest uh, accounting of missions in Iraq occurred during this period. Because I know for us, we were operating almost every night, uh, sometimes twice a night, 
going after mid-level and high-level leaders and just a very impactful deployment. It was everything I ever dreamed of doing as a SEAL. And finally, I had built back the respect. I had humbled myself. I truly came to understand what it is to lead, to trust in my guys, to do their job, and to, you know, add a little bit of, you know, guidance here and there where it was needed. I mean, that's a great thing about working on high-level teams. You know, good leaders give their people the power to go execute what they're good at. And uh, and this was the best task unit assault troop and platoon I had ever worked in. So went through this entire deployment, got to the last week, and I had gotten my career back on track. Like literally, probably a couple days prior to the, the mission that forever changed my life, my boss had came to me and said two things had happened. One, I had been approved to screen for our next level SEAL team, which um, you are not even allowed to, you have to have endorsements by your leadership just to screen. And then they have to say, okay, we're willing to let this guy come screen just to get a slot to potentially come. So I had been approved to come screen. Uh, So I was training hard for that. So this let me know, hey man, you got you got yourself back on track. You redeem yourself. And then my boss told me that on the next mission we were going to have in Iraq, I was going to run as the ground force commander. So I would have been overall in charge of everything. So they were grooming me for the next level of my career, which also said to me, you did it. They trust you enough that they are going to allow you to be the senior man on a actual you know, mission. Um, The next mission that came, though, was uh, going after the senior al-Qaeda leader in the Anbar province of Iraq. And and my boss came up to me and said, a very dangerous mission. We knew what we were going into. We knew we were going to encounter very heavy resistance. And my boss said, hey, Red, I know I told you you were going to be the GFC, but this isn't the one we want to do that on. Uh, So he said, I'm going to make you the assault force commander for the actual assault of this target. I said, "Okay, roger that. Launched on this mission, and long story short, uh, everything we expected, we ran into. Uh, We walked into a very well-executed ambush, and my my team uh, that had been fragmented from the original target takedown, we had flexed and moved to another target where we had seen activity about 3 a.m. in the morning, and we, when we moved to that, uh, that other target, the security detail for this Al-Qaeda leader had set up a very well-established um, ambush, and my team and I walked right into it. Um, and I was wounded um, in, in this engagement, as well was my medic and another member of my team, and there were six of us, six of us at this point. Um, they pulled back to the only point of cover we had behind us, which was a big John Deere style tractor tire and then nothing but thousands of yards of Iraqi desert. And I was still out front. Um, They got our other wounded guys back behind the tire. Uh, I was still shooting and I had been, at this point, I had been stitched across the body armor. I'd taken two rounds in the left elbow, uh, rounds off my gun. I took a round off my helmet. Uh, I had my left night vision tube shot off and uh, was in, you know, uh, two round and two rounds in the left arm. I thought my left arm had been shot off at this point. So I tried to turn around and get back to that tire when I caught a round from behind that hit me in the face and uh, <clears throat> hit me right in front of the ear, traveled through my face, exited the right side of my nose, blew out my right cheekbone. What was left of my right cheekbone broke and kicked out to the right. 
it blew out my orbital floor. Uh, my eye fell into this uh, newfound hole in my face. It broke all the bones above my eye. It shattered, it broke the head of my jaw and it shattered my jaw to my chin and knocked me out. 35 to 40 minute firefight uh, from about that time, we estimate. So I was all of this occurred in the first five minutes and there was 35 to 40 minutes. Uh, my team leader stepped up and did phenomenally. I owe my life to him and the rest of the team fighting back. I was out of the fight unconscious for a period of time, came to recognize we were in a really bad situation. And my team leader realized I was still alive, ran forward in this fire, managed to pull me back, got a tourniquet on my arm and saved my life. Uh, and we made the decision to call in a fire mission directly in our, on our position uh, from an AC-130 gunship. It ended up being the closest fire mission in the entire Iraq war, but it saved our lives. And, um, but it started a whole new journey for me by the time I got medevaced and um, <clears throat> over a four-day period got back to the United States. As remarkable as Jason's story is, surviving what should have killed him was only the beginning of his inspirational journey. While recovering, he composed a simple note and had it placed on his hospital room door. Little did he know those words would inspire millions and bring him worldwide acclaim. So here I was, totally redeemed myself, had my career back on track, found myself in a hospital bed with doctors coming to me saying, hey, uh, we're gonna amputate your arm. My arm had not been shot off, but the elbow had been effectively destroyed. Um, I took a round in the lower bicep and a round in the inner forearm that two high caliber machine guns just shattered my entire elbow and took out huge chunks of bone, uh, took out parts of the capsule is what they call your joints. It took out parts of my capsule. It severed nerves. Uh, I had no use of my left hand, so they told me that they were gonna amputate my arm. Um, I was too weak. I couldn't even get out of bed. Uh, I was so weak from all the blood loss. And um, I had tubes coming out of every orifice. I, w I had a trach. I was wired shut. Um, I had a stomach tube to feed me. And um, just obviously kind of struggling with what had happened. You know, I think it's easy that in life we have these ebbs and flows. We have these hard moments and then we overcome those. And then sometimes we have hard moment hard moment, hard moment, hard moment, and people start to get this idea of why me, I'm a victim. And I think I was faced with that decision. And I'll be honest, I was kind of struggling with everything that had happened, but there was a little bit of a pivotal moment that happened. I had somebody come into my hospital room about, I don't know, five or six days after I got there. And uh, they started having a conversation uh, as I was dozing a little bit about the war. And you have to understand a military hospital in war is a very hard place to be, especially the wounded ward. I mean, you are around people that have sustained some of the most grievous injuries. Um, and it's just, it's hard to see. I mean, it's not something you will ever see in any normal walk of life, um, you know, and it can be overwhelming. So they started having a conversation about what a pity, what a shame, you know, how overwhelming this is. These poor young men and women will never be the same. They'll never be productive members of society. They're always going to have to uh, be taken care of. They'll never reach their full potential. We've taken that away from them or whatever it was. So just a lot of pity. And I heard this. Um, as they left and was kind of digesting it. And I think these are the moments where you have a choice. This is something I call emotional leadership. 
you can wallow in your misery and sit on what I call the X, any point of attack or any point of mental um, weakness and focus on the negativity, which the vast majority of the people in the world do. They focus on the negativity. They focus on what they can't do. They focus on what they've lost. They focus on what somebody else has and what they don't have instead of looking at what can they create within themselves. So they choose to be a victim versus striving forward and being a victor. And, and in that moment, I was like, no, I'm not going to feel sorry for myself. I'm not going to have pity. And this is where I tell people, take the hard path. Always take the hardest path because when you are uncomfortable and you fail and you have to grind through massive amounts of pain and discomfort, that is what forges an overcome mindset so that someday you're going to go through something else as hard or maybe even harder, but you'll be ready for it. And it's no different than military training. It's no different than what we do to get ready for hard missions. Uh, you're just doing it mentally and emotionally. And that journey of failure as a leader and choosing to stay and walk that path prepared me for that moment in the hospital where I was faced with the choice. Do I, do I believe what they have to say or do I drive my own path? And I chose in that moment, no way, no way am I going to sit here and feel sorry for myself. I'm going to find a path. So my wife came back into the room shortly thereafter, and I wrote out this sign. Um, and there was no, and, uh, and a lot of people are like, how long did it take you to write that? And literally, I mean, it was instant. I, there was no real thought that went into it. It basically was just a proclamation that you're not going to come into this room with, with pity. Because uh, I'm not going to stand for it, and I'm not going to let you stand for it. So it basically, the sign said, attention to all who enter here. If you're coming to this room with sadness or sorrow, don't bother. The wounds I received, I got in a job that I love, doing it for people that I love, defending the freedom of a country I deeply love. I will make a full recovery. What is full, that is the absolute utmost physically, I have the ability to recover. And then I will push that about 20% further through sheer mental tenacity. This room you're about to enter is a room of fun, optimism, and intense rapid regrowth. If you are not prepared for that, go elsewhere. And uh, we signed it, the management, and I told my wife to put it on the door. The original sign was actually written on a piece of uh, uh, like computer paper because that's, you know, a ream of paper because that's what I communicated on. And my wife put it on the door, and a few days later, somebody else came into the room uh, expressing a lot of pity. And I told my wife, I said, hey, nope, that didn't work. I said, go find me the biggest, brightest piece of paper you can find. We're gonna transcribe it and I want it so big that nobody can miss it. So she went and found a, a big piece of like bright red, orange, neon paper. And we transcribed it on that. And I told her, I said, hang this on the door. Make sure every doctor, nurse, medic, I don't care who they are in this hospital, they know nobody's allowed in my room until they read that sign. And uh, a teammate of mine saw it a couple of days later and he tacked a trident, the seal emblem, to the bottom. And, uh, and the sign started to take on a life of its own from that point forward. Um, somebody took a picture of it and wrote a blog about it and it went viral all over the place. And um, I got invited to the White House after I got out of the hospital because of the sign. Other wounded warriors were motivated by that sign. That sign has gone on to impact millions of people. 
um, individuals from grievous accidents to having cancer to their loved ones have been in, in serious accidents. It has impacted senior leaders of government. Uh, Secretary Robert Gates writes about it in his book, Duty. Uh, First Lady Michelle Obama writes about it twice in her book, uh, Becoming Michelle. Um, I did not write that sign for those reasons. Uh, I really wrote that sign as a, a stance. Um, this is what I'm going to stand for. But it went on to have this impact, and this is something that in life, this truly is emotional leadership. It is when the chips are the hardest and you're feeling sorry for yourself and you want to focus inward, leadership is your ability to push through that and say, I'm going to choose positivity. I'm going to choose the way forward. I'm going to choose to get off that X. Uh, and you never know the impact it's going to have. You never know what spark you're going to ignite in other people. And that's truly what leadership is. That's what great leaders do. They figure out how to motivate and inspire people through the darkest times. And that sign has gone on to do that. And uh, yeah, it's been an amazing journey. I mean, I went on, you know, just to crunch down the rest. Um, I thought I'd get back operational, and I worked very hard to do that. Uh, the doctor managed to save my arm. It has never been the same. Um, I have limited mobility. I have some limited use of my my left hand works pretty good, but I still have some nerve damage, so grip strength and stuff like that is weak. All of those things prevented me from going back operational. But I wanted to finish my career. Uh, I had set out to do 20 years, and I said, I'm going to do 20 years, even if it's not operational. So the SEAL teams were great. They allowed me to do several unique things in operational and training and special projects. Uh, to finish my career, I retired with just uh, about 11 days shy, 21 years of service. Jason has an amazing wife, Erica. They are so bonded that for those who know him, it is impossible to think of one without the other. So one of the components of leadership that I talk about, uh, there are five levels of leadership, something I call the Pentagon of Peak Performance, that are critical to lead yourself in to be an effective, balanced leader, to be able to manage all the craziness that life throws at us. So physical leadership, mental leadership, emotional leadership, um, social leadership, and spiritual leadership. Social leadership is your ability to invest time in the relationships around you and also to understand to... Invest time in the ones that are good and healthy for you and to cut away the ones that are negative and doing damage to you because so many people spend time in relationships that just deplete them. I was so fortunate to meet my wife. Um, she is one of the most amazing people I know. And uh, in my first book, The Trident, when you read that book, you know, I'm blessed. My story is amazing. But you will fall in love with my wife, Erica, because... Uh, you know, I'm sure there's some sainthood waiting for her somewhere because uh, what she went through and she never batted an eye. Um, she never said anything negative about what we went through. And man, I, I, I threw some shit at her over the years, uh, even dumping her when we were first dating or, you know, probably a year after we were dating. And <laughs> thankfully, after a very hard, hard fought battle uh, to win her back, she took me back and we ended up married and went on to this crazy journey. We disagree sometimes, but we, we just we see eye to eye. She is my best friend. Um, she is my confidant. Uh, and she is my business partner, and she is the mother of my children, and she is a great mother. 
but um but you have to put time into it and the biggest the biggest advice i can get if you are young and you're in a new relationship man you better choose wisely uh because in this day and age where we're it's becoming um fashionable to quit or to walk away if you don't like it or if you're uncomfortable I personally think that's bullshit. Um, you know, we, we say these words at the beginning of a marriage till death do us part, yet people take it so lightly. So, you know, stop entering into things so lightly and make sure you're making the right decisions because by choosing the right person, they're literally, imagine, imagine you're in a fierce firefight for your life. That teammate next to you is the most important teammate you're ever going to have. And, and everything else will fall away at some point. But the reality is things happen in life that will suddenly and unexpectedly throw us off the train. And if you haven't invested time in your most important teammates, your friends and family, they may not be there for you when you get thrown off the train. But those are the people you need in these critical life ambush firefights that happen every day in life. And, uh, you know, that is social leadership and that is what I tell people they have to do. So I've been fortunate enough that she has been by my side, um, you know, sometimes even in front of me at times, you know, leading the way. I call her my long haired admiral and she is, man, she is a leader. And uh, I hope for all of you out there, you know, never too late, never too late to put some time and effort and invest in your relationships, invest in your kids because, uh, uh, it's important. And, that, and I'll tell you what, when you get to the end of your life, it's all that's going to matter. You can accumulate all the shit in the world. None of that matters when you're looking, you know, death in the face. Uh, all you're going to think about is, is that close circle of people you love. No one survives events like these and then thrives in the way that Jason has without an incredible level of faith. Jason tells us it's not always easy. Sometimes our environment or our circumstances drive us away from it. But pure belief in God will always bring us back. I mean, I grew up in a very um, strong Christian family. Uh, my dad was deacon and an elder at our church. I had blind faith when I was a kid, and so much so that by the time, but I had never really studied or tried to understand faith or understand God. I just accepted, you know, hey, there's a God because that's what I've learned my whole life. Uh, you know, and Jesus died for my sins. But as I got older, um, I'm a very analytical person. Faith, honestly, as I started to get older and, and a little more educated, it become very hard for me. Faith is a very hard thing for me because it is something that is built on. You cannot see it. You cannot feel it. Um, there are fact-based things that lead to it, but you know, you've got to pull all this data together to come to those facts. And in this world where, you know, faith or, you know, religion is being beat down, uh, you know, there was a period of time when I came into the military, specifically in the SEAL teams, where, you know, I told myself there's no place, you know, uh, you know, for being a Christian. So I kind of put my faith on the back seat and became what I like to call a closet Christian, uh, you know, uh, oftentimes, usually in the the dangerous times, I would pray to God. I got into combat in Afghanistan and, you know, I was like, dude, you know, you, you realize that every time you go out on a mission, you may not come back, you know. So my mortality, even though I had done all kinds of dangerous things, it wasn't until I got into combat. And I think 
probably because the very first mission I was exposed to was Operation Red Wings, and we had lost 19, 19 people. Um, we had lost my task unit commander. We had lost close friends of mine that were in my sister platoon that had been shot down in the helicopter. And being at that ramp ceremony when, uh, when they sent those guys home uh, was really eye-opening for me. I was like, these are the stakes, man. Jason lives those principles that to many of us are just words. Resiliency, perseverance, determination. If you go to the dictionary, Jason Redman's picture should be featured next to those definitions as the living, breathing example of what they mean. How can I help people with this incredible journey? Because the reality is, man, everybody fails. Everybody encounters massive adversity. Everybody has crisis. Um, everybody encounters huge change in their lives and some people navigate it better than others. Some people just fall down and die, you know, maybe not physically, but mentally and emotionally when they encounter these things. And what I began to realize is even though people would say, hey, Jay, we want you to come in and speak on leadership, you know, you're a leadership expert. And, you know, what I've come to realize is I'm not a leadership expert. I'm a failure expert. Like I'm so good at failing, man and figuring out how to drive forward. There's a component of leadership in there, but I am a failure expert and everybody fails. And there's so many people who just curl up and die on failure because they convince themselves it's the end. And it's never the end, man. It's, it's you choose your path and, and you choose how you're going to do it. It ain't gonna be easy. It's gonna be painful. It's gonna be hard. It's gonna suck but it can be a new beginning if you're willing to walk that path and it will make you so much better in the long run. So that's what I speak on now. I teach people how to get off the X, which is a military jargon for the term, the point of attack. And interestingly enough, the way we got off the X, both in my firefight in Iraq, the way I finally got off the X from my leadership failure, and the way I've helped other people get off the X are actually the same way we do it in firefights. I've just turned it into something that anyone can use to start to get off the axe and apply leadership in all aspects of their lives to be able to successfully move forward. If you are listening to this and right now you're like, oh my God, I've failed. Um, you know, right now, maybe you're thinking about suicide. I've been there. I was there, man. I thought about it too after my leadership failure. It's never too late. It's never too late, man. You may be sitting on the X convincing yourself and, and convincing yourself you're a victim, but only you can lead yourself off the X. But there are always people around you that can help you. And that's what my book is about, how to lead yourself off the, that X and find success again. So don't buy into that bullshit, man. It is never the end. Anyone can get off the X, but it starts with you. In 2013, Jason released his book, The Trident which was supported by the Department of Defense and the SEAL teams and became a New York Times bestseller. His second book, Overcome, is available for pre-order and will be officially released in December. Jason also offers training on leadership, helping people to overcome crisis, failure, and massive adversity. Go to Jason's website, jasonredman.com or getoffx.com. Click on the coaching link and you will find an online course titled 72 Hours to Peak Performance that provides you with real-world solutions to escape life's ambushes. Jason can be found on all social media platforms and is most active on Instagram at jasonredman.com.
www. Copland is produced for those courageous men and women whose alarm clock goes off every day. They put their feet on the ground, buckle on gear, and kiss their families goodbye with no guarantee they will ever come home. They go willingly, facing predators and violence on behalf of good and innocent people who simply want to live safe, peaceful lives. Thank you for listening. God bless and go be amazing.